This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Today we'll be focusing on uh, the the last phrase in verse 9, but uh, to have a sense of the context, we will read verses 7 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to this portion of your word with hungry hearts, thirsty souls, to receive the bread of life, to receive living water from your word. Lord, we pray that you would feed our souls on the scriptures today. We pray that you would particularly give us a sense of who you are, a sense of the majesty of your being, a sense of the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We have arrived at a section in which Jesus gives some uh, extensive teaching on this whole subject of prayer. He's already warned us that uh, we are not to look to the Gentiles, that is, in this context, the pagans uh, around us, for our example of what prayer is to be. He's already given some warning here uh, about the practice of simply heaping up empty phrases. Uh, They think, the pagans do, that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why? Because we're not praying to an impersonal force. We're not praying to a, a, a detached deity. But rather, as Christians, we are coming to our Heavenly Father, someone who knows us better than we know ourselves, someone who, as Jesus says here, knows what you need before you ask him. So we're not seeking leverage with God by many, many words, uh, or really even by fancy words or fancy arguments, although I do think that argument biblically has a place in prayer. The point is we are coming to someone who knows us, someone who loves us, someone who cares 
about us. And we need to remember that. And so then Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this. As we said last time, Jesus is giving here a pattern for prayer. There is an outline given here for prayer. It divides up after the preface, after the greeting, our Father in heaven, which we looked at last week, into six petitions or requests. And we saw that the first three have to do with God. They're God-focused, and they have to do with God's name. They have to do with God's kingdom. They have to do with God's will. And then the second three are focused toward us and toward our needs and have to do with our need for our daily bread, our need for forgiveness, our need for God's protection from evil and from the evil one. Now, while it's a pattern for prayer, certainly there's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer itself, as we do most every Sunday here. Although even there, the irony is that we can begin to pray this prayer like the Gentiles do, mechanically, unthinking. Uh, One of the purposes in studying the Lord's Prayer in depth, in detail, in the context of a study of the larger Sermon on the Mount, is to avoid that is to enable us to spend some time thinking about these words, thinking about each of these phrases and what it is we are praying when we say them together. I think there's value in repeating the Lord's Prayer as long as our minds are engaged, as long as we have a sense of what it is we're saying. And so that's why we're taking the time to go through this prayer in each of these petitions and take an extended look at them. Well, as I said last week, we looked at the the greeting or the preface, Our Father in Heaven, which reminds us both of the intimacy that we have with God as our Father, but also that we not forget that He is our Father in Heaven, that this is the Lord God Almighty. This is the Alpha and the Omega uh, we are coming before. And so on the one hand, we enjoy an intimate familiarity with God. On the other hand, we know there's a line there that we do not want to transgress. And to go from being familiar and intimate and warm with our Heavenly Father, uh, really to being impertinent with the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. And so we want to be aware as we come, both of how close we can be with our Heavenly Father and of his sovereign majesty. Well, today we come to the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy Name, or as it's rendered in more modern terms here in the ESV, hallowed be your name. Now, as we look at this, really the theme of what we're talking about today is this, and, and really the point of this petition. As Christians, it should be our utmost concern, highest concern of our hearts, that the name of God, and therefore God himself, is esteemed and respected both by us and by others. As Christians, it should be the utmost concern of our hearts that the holy name of God should be esteemed by both ourselves and by others. Now, as we look at the text, we can break up our thinking about it into three parts. First of all, uh, think about the name of God itself, and then the prayer, the petition that God's name should be hallowed, and then third, some uh, practical implications, what that means. For us. So first of all, let's look at the name of God itself. In the Bible, particularly in the Semitic culture of the scriptures in the Old Testament, uh, the name of a person was very closely associated with the person himself. Now, we experience that 
There may be a name that you really never thought much about. Uh, maybe you did. Maybe you liked it. Maybe you never really thought much about it. But when you name your child that, or when you meet someone by that name, that name takes on a significance. When you think of that name, you think of the person, right? It identifies that person. Now, certainly that was true, uh, is true now even, the identification of the, the, the name with the person. And you, we see that today in that while there are Caleb's and Joshua's and uh, Sarah's and Abigail's, you never meet a boy named uh, Judas Iscariot uh, in Christian circles. Well, it's, it's a biblical name, but there's an association there that, that causes us not to want to place that name on our children. Well, if that's true now, it was even more so and even stronger in the culture of the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes parents would uh, give a name to their child in hopes that the child would live up to that name. For example, and, and the, perhaps the, the most classic example is the name of Jesus. The angel said to Mary, you shall call him Jesus, which means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. So the connection of the name Jesus with salvation, with, with being saved. Um, you also uh, see that, for example, where uh, the name Abraham was, was given to Abram. Abram means exalted father. And the Lord, actually, even though he had not become the father of nations, which is what Abraham means, the Lord said, I will give you the name. Your name is now Abraham, because this is what you are, although in the future, because if God says it and promises it, it is as good as done. And so he gives, even in midlife, late life, uh, to Abraham, to Abram, a new name, Abraham, because of what he would become. Sometimes a name is given to somebody because of who they already are. And you see this in the scriptures as well. Um, I sometimes ponder Nabal. Remember Abigail's husband, Nabal, and David's come to him for help. And he says, I don't know who you are. Get out of here. Scram. And the men with David say, well, let's, let's you know, attack. Let's, let's kill him. And uh, Abigail, Nabal's husband, comes out and meets with David and provides him and his men with supplies and food and says, pay, pay no attention to Nabal. Because as his name is, so is he. Well, the name Nabal means fool. And I wonder, you know, did his parents give him this name? Or did it, I suspect it may have come later. Uh, may not be the name his parents gave him, but it may have come to him later. Uh, at any rate, that was his name. As his name was, so was he. Uh, another example of that from the scriptures uh, is where Jacob wrestles with the nighttime visitor and he says, uh, it's the, the angel asks him, who are you? What is your name? He says, my name is Jacob. And he says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've wrestled with God and with men. Now, the name Jacob means he deceives or he cheats or he grasps the heel, which is what Jacob did when he was born or held on to Esau's heel. Well, the name Israel was given to him. It means he wrestles or he strives with God. And so a name is given to him because of that, that incident. And so names are very important in the scripture. Important in our culture, yes, but there was a premium placed on a person's name in that time because it represented the person. Now, if that's true with people, how much more true is that? with God, when it comes to God and when it comes to his name. The name of God matters. I don't know if you noticed that uh, I don't pick out hymns and readings at random. 
The call to worship refers to the name of God. Every hymn, both hymns we've sung so far, including and then the third hymn at the end of the service, refers to the name of God. In fact, the last two have them in the title. Come, thou almighty king, teach us thy name to sing. Uh, baptized into your name, most holy. Holy God, we praise your name. The name of God is referred to. If you do a concordance search... Uh, you will find the name of God referred to over and over. Either we refer to the name of God or your name, O God, second person addressing God, referring to his name. The name of God matters. Now, if you look at the scriptures, you'll find that the name of God or names of God are multitudinous. Uh, not infinite, but just an astounding variety in the ways that God is referred to in Scripture, the various names that are given to him, to his name, that is, to his being. Uh, a professor of mine in seminary, Richard Pratt, wrote a book years ago called Pray With Your Eyes Open. And in this book, he has in the end an appendix listing names, titles, and metaphors for God. I'm not going to read them to you because they run on for five pages. But just the names of God called from the scriptures. Let me give you just a sampling. Uh, Abba, Father, the Ancient of Days, the Creator, uh, the God Almighty, God Most High, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of heaven and earth, the Holy One of Israel, Holy Father, the Jealous One, the Judge of all the earth, King of glory, King of heaven, King of the ages, King of the nations, the living God, the Lord our righteousness. Father, first and the last, the God of all comfort, the God of gods, the God of the armies of Israel, the God who sees, the great and awesome God. These are just for the Father. Come to God the Son, the Advocate, the Apostle and High Priest, the Author of Salvation, the Chosen One, Consolation of Israel, the Cornerstone, the Deliverer, the Glory of Israel, the Good Shepherd, the Head of the Church, Jesus of Nazareth, the Judge, the King, the King of Kings, the Lamb, the Lamb of Gods, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Living Stone, the Mediator, the Physician, the Prince, Prince of Life, Prince of Peace, Rabbi, the Righteous Branch, the Righteous Judge, the Righteous One, Rock, the Root of David, Ruler of God's creation. Again, just God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Breath of the Almighty, the Counselor, the Deposit, the Eternal Spirit, The spirit he gave us, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of his son, the spirit of our God, spirit of the Lord, the spirit who searches all things. All these different ways that the the, the persons of the Trinity are referred to in Scripture. That was just a, a small sampling. And Dr. Pratt's point is that when we come to God in prayer, we should take advantage of the riches, of the varieties of names given to God in Scripture. Instead, I know just out of habit for myself, and I suspect you too, we tend to address God with one, two, maybe three names, when in Scripture there are hundreds of names given to God. So the name of God is what is referred to, because the name represents the person, and here the name of God represents who God is. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his uh, studies on the Sermon on the Mount, summarizes this way. He says, the name... In other words, means all that is true of God and all that has been revealed concerning God. It means God in all of his attributes, God in all that he is in and of himself, and God in all that he has done and all that he is doing. So we talk about the name of God. We're talking about 
something as, as big, something as comprehensive as God himself, in who he is, in his attributes, in his works. So the name of God is a vital and important subject here. Now, that brings us then to the second point, not just the name of God, referring to him in all those ways, but this prayer, the prayer that God's name would be hallowed. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. We've got six petitions here. Three of them concern God's interests, and the very first one has to do with his name, or as as another way of saying, with God himself, with who he is. Why? The very first one has to do with God's name. Why is that? Well, let's look at what it says here, and I think we'll have some idea why this is the very first petition of the Lord's Prayer, and the first out of the three that pertain to God. Hallowed be your name. Hallow means holy, essentially. Hallowed here actually is in a a form in Greek that means let your name be hallowed. It's easy to read that as a statement. Holy is your name. Well, that's true, of course. But in Greek, it comes out more plainly, perhaps, than at least this rendering in English, that this is not a statement. It is in an imperative. It is let your name be held as holy. Let your name be esteemed. Let your name be reverenced. That's the petition that we're asking for. And it is, in fact, not a statement, but a petition. Let your name be counted as holy. Now, all that's saying, in short, is that God's name should be treated with care. That when we speak of God, we should do so with reverence and with thought. Not, uh, not flippantly or carelessly, let alone in a vulgar fashion, but God's name is to be treated with care. That does not mean that it is to be treated with superstition or with undue caution. You may be familiar with the Jewish practice of not even saying the name of God for fear that in so doing they might say the name of God or speak of God in a way that offended God. So they didn't say it. And in fact, when you come to the four Hebrew letters, the Tetragrammaton in the Old Testament scriptures, that was the revealed covenant name of God. It would it could be pronounced today something like Yahweh or Yahweh. Um, they wouldn't say it. Instead, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. It's interesting that our English Bibles perpetuate that. Uh, when we come to the name Yahweh, also known as Jehovah, but a more accurate rendering probably is something like Yahweh, uh, in our English Bibles, it's rendered by large cap Lord to distinguish from Lord in small caps, which represented Adonai, Lord or Master. The covenant name of God is represented by large cap Lord in our English Bibles. The uh, 1901 American Standard Bible rendered it Jehovah, uh, trying to reflect the, the, the accurate, uh, accurately the letters that were there. But the Jews wouldn't say it. In other words, when it came to it, they'd say something else. Now, the motive is laudable. They don't want to say the name of God, but that's the name that God gave them. That was the name that God gave to, to Moses when he asked, who, who shall I tell Israel sent me? Well, that's the name, the covenant name that the Lord gave, and yet they wouldn't say it. So I think you can go to an extreme, and as they did, in not saying the name of God. But certainly when we do speak of God or the Lord or a person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, that we should do so with all due reverence, respect, and care. 
Now, why is this the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Well, it is because of God's concern for his own glory and the honor of his reputation. Let me refer you to just a couple passages. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. Verse 8. I am the Lord. Yahweh, as it's in Hebrew there. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is concerned for his own glory. You might say, well, that seems a little egocentric. Well, who else's glory would God be concerned for? He is God. There is none other like him. There's another similar passage to this in Isaiah 48, just a few chapters over. As God is dealing with Israel and their propensity to idols, to worshiping stone, wood, actually worshiping truly the desires of their own heart, worshiping themselves is really what idolatry comes down to. Uh, Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will share his glory with no one, and that also implies that God will not allow his glory in any way to be diminished. Nothing could be more wrong, nothing could be more perverse or twisted than that the God who created the heavens and the earth should not have his due glory. It is due to him. It is his right. By the way, kind of as as an aside there, if you want to turn over to John 17, passage you may know is Jesus' prayer to his Father in the garden. John 17, verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It was Jesus' desire that his disciples would one day be with him, that they would be able to see Jesus' glory and all of its majesty and all of its radiance, to finally and truly see Jesus for who he is, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was concerned for his glory, and though veiled in flesh, wanted his disciples one day to be able to see him as he truly was. And so God is concerned for his own glory. Conversely, in our fallen and sinful condition, our tendency, our sinful inclination is to treat God with disdain, to treat God with contempt. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden when they decided to put themselves as judge over what God had said, put themselves as the arbiter over whether the Lord God or Satan and the serpent was telling the truth. And that in itself is to show contempt to God, to say, okay, God, I have your input, but I'm going to weigh some other options here and I'll make the final decision. Can't do that. We can't come to Scripture now and say, well, I'll decide if I accept this part or not. Because that is to treat God, that is to treat his name with contempt, with disdain. Now, as Christians, our preeminent desire should be for God's glory. For the glory, for the esteem, for the reverence, for the respect of his name that is due to him. And ultimately, we are praying something Godward here. We are praying that God would receive, certainly from us, from our families, from our church, but also from the whole world. 
the glory, the regard, the worship, the esteem, the respect, the reverence that is due to the glory of God. But if you're thinking here, you'll also notice that we're praying for ourselves because we are praying here that we would be the kind of people who treat God's name, his character, his being with that same respect and reverence. So in one sense, we're praying for ourselves and for our fellow man that we would be that kind of person that, that reveres God's name. But we're primarily praying that God would be glorified, that he would receive the glory, he would receive the praise that he deserves. Because you see, the glory, the honor, the esteem of God's name, the esteem of God himself, that's the big thing. That's the main thing. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. That's why this petition is first. This is the big thing that God is glorified in our lives and the lives of others and in all creation. And although that does not happen now, one day it will. Christ comes back when we're in heaven. We'll be praising God. We'll be worshiping God. He will be glorified. You say, but wait, there'll be people in hell gnashing their teeth in unbelievable agony, cursing God. Perhaps so, but God's name is glorified in the justice shown in the punishment of their sins. You see, their very suffering itself brings glory to God, glory to his justice, glory to the fact that he is of eyes too pure to look on sin. God will be glorified even among those who hate and curse his name. God will be glorified. His name will be held holy. Now, some practical implications here. What does this have to do with us? What difference should this make? Well, maybe the first thing is that we need to pray that God would give us a due burden for the honor and the glory of his name. Remember reading a book by John Piper talking about the motivation for missions. And most of us tend to think, well, the motivation for missions is love for people in another place. Concern for them that they are without the gospel, they are without Christ in this world, and without hope in the world to come. And all that's true, of course. But it's awfully hard to love and care and feel for people you don't see or know. God does give people that burden as part of a call to ministry. But what John Piper said, and I think he's absolutely right, that the first motivation for missions is the honor of God's name. A burden that people, whoever they are, whatever language they speak, whatever country in which they live, would glorify and praise God. Because while they may feel compassion for and care about those people, more than that, they have zeal that God's name should be hallowed in all the earth. And really, it doesn't matter who they are. If they don't know God and glorify him as God, they need to because God is worthy of the worship of his creation. And that, I think, and I think Piper's right, is the primary motivation for missions, the glory and honor of God's name. That there are people out there who are not worshiping God, but they need to be and they should be. So we need to pray that God would put in our own hearts a burden for the honor of his name, starting with us, starting in our own lives. And then that brings us to some practical uh, thoughts here about how this might work out in our lives. First and most obvious, be careful how you speak about God and the things of God. Be careful 
joking about God, joking about heaven, joking about the scriptures or verses in the scripture or the things that the scriptures say. We can mean well, but sometimes I think we can begin to tread on the edges of this petition when we treat God or the things of God or the scriptures in a lighthearted or careless or even flippant way. Now, that's not to say that we have to be morose. You know, we have to dress up and put on a very stern face before we say anything about God. Of course not. But it does mean that we need to be thoughtful and caring in how we speak about God, how we speak about the things of God. Uh, Along the same lines, be careful about indiscriminate, casual, or even disrespectful use of God's name. When we speak of God's name. No, we don't want to go so far as to say, well, I just won't say his name, therefore I can't sin against him. No. But we do, when we speak of God, want to be careful about speaking casually or even disrespectfully in terms of his name. Now, how would this play out? Well, first, obviously, the name of God is not to be in any way used as a profanity, uh, as, a, as an expletive. Uh, anytime I think of that, I think of Will Barker and his illustration. Uh, Dr. Barker was a professor of church history at uh, Westminster Seminary. Um, when he was in college, he had a, a roommate who tended to uh, use the name of God in, in a profane way. And so Dr. Barker adopted the practice of his roommates who had a girlfriend using his girlfriend's name as an expletive. And his roommate began to get the point that he didn't like, Dr. Barker didn't like hearing the name of God used as a common expletive as he experienced his girlfriend's name being uttered in the most careless and contemptuous way. Uh, Also, speaking of God, we need to be careful that we not use the name of God as an interjection. Oh, my God. You ever heard anybody say that? You say, what, is it prayer time? Because if it's prayer time, I want to pray too. I want to join with you. Uh, That's not what they meant, was it? They weren't bowing the knee to the Lord. They were simply uttering it as an interjection. Or to, to, you know, as an as a interjection, in the name of Jesus. As Christians, there should be something in us that, that cringes when we hear the holy name of God treated as, as a mere interjection, an exclamation of surprise or disgust or astonishment. But even that, we need to avoid, be careful about the use of circumlocutions. Now, we've talked about circumlocutions already. It simply means to speak about. The Jews would not refer to the kingdom of God. Matthew was writing to Jews. That's why he refers to the kingdom of heaven. He wants to be sensitive, not to say the kingdom of God. Now, Luke was writing to Gentiles. He'd, he'd refer to the kingdom of God. Any of the Gentiles wouldn't take offense. But Matthew, writing to Gentiles or to uh, Jews, referred to the kingdom of heaven. It's like referring to God as providence. Providence did this. Uh, It's a way of speaking about or using the name Adonai in place of Yahweh, the name Lord in place of Jehovah uh, in the Old Testament. Gosh. Jeez. These are kind of ways, gosh darn. Saying it without really saying it. And even then, you know, well, yeah, it's not really the name of God. And we're getting kind of on the edges of it here. But as people who do want God's name to be hallowed, we do want to be careful about even beginning to get close to, if not actually quite saying, the name of God in careless 
unthinking ways. Be careful about the use of God's attributes. Holy cow. Do you know that only God is truly holy? No cows are holy. Not even the Chick-fil-A cows. (laughs) God alone is holy. And we need to be careful about taking the attributes of God and applying them unthinkingly, uncaringly to things that, if not bad, and maybe some are, or at least indifferent or mundane, ordinary worldly things that really should not share attributes like holiness with the Alpha and the Omega. And so all of this is to say we need to go back and we need to be careful. We need to be thinking people about the name of God because the name is God himself. It represents God. And it really is how we think about and how we speak about the Lord God himself. And so as we read this, it may be you need to go to the Lord and confess to him some ways that you have treated his name carelessly or casually or even blasphemously. Uh, And ask God's forgiveness for that and ask him to give you a burden for the honor and the the glory, the holiness of his name. And then ask for the Holy Spirit to make you aware if there are patterns in your speech that you need to change and ask God to help you to do that. Because while we want God's name to be esteemed in all the world, we need to start with our own hearts, right? With our own lips, with our own minds and uh, cultivate that, that reverence for God's name and therefore for God himself in our own lives. Well, I want to close by looking briefly at Isaiah 29, Isaiah 29, uh, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah 29, verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. You see, the Lord was looking ahead. He was saying one day their children will be this kind of people. One day, the people of God, far from turning to idols, will be the kind who sanctify, that is to hold in reverence, to to understand as holy my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe. That's really what it means. Hallowed be your name. May we stand in awe of the God of Israel. You see, this is a prophecy about us. And so by God's grace, may we be the people who sanctify the name of God, sanctify the Holy One of Israel, stand in awe of our God. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that all too often we think of you and speak of you in ways that do not befit the majesty of your character and the honor of your name. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for having such a small conception of your glory. Lord, we pray that you would show us in the scriptures and in our understanding of you and in prayer who you are. Lord, as Moses prayed, show us your glory that we might have a burning passion for the glory and honor of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.